All right. Good morning, everybody. A little bit of a colder morning. You didn't experience as bad as first service. Was anybody uh, for second service on your way out, you still had to hose down your windshield, or was it done by then? Done. Yeah, I, um, I had to use the hose, and uh, I had this, like, this weird, supposed to be special hose, but I hate it now. Um, I turned it off, but it slowly reduces the pressure, so I let go, and then <laughs> right before church, so. And it was cold. Okay, so we are dealing with one of the most popular Bible verses in our culture today. 50 years ago, it wouldn't even have been in the top five, but it was like number 40 on the rock charts, and it's been climbing up ever since. It is for sure in the top five. It might be in the top three. So you have like most popular common used Bible verses. You got John 3.16. A lot of people know that. Uh, The Lord is my shepherd. A lot of people know that. A lot of people know Um, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So it might not be topping those three, but it's climbing the charts every every year, and it's used by Christians and non-Christians. And that verse is, judge not lest ye be judged. Now, everyone knows it for whatever reason in the King James Version. Like, you might have never even read the King James Version, but whenever you quote this verse, it's, judge not lest ye be judged. You go straight, go back to the 1611 King James translation, using the Old English. It's, judge not lest ye be judged. Now, this verse is used by Christians and non-Christian alike. Usually, when someone makes a moral judgment or tells you you're doing something wrong, and immediately they say, hey, the Bible says, don't judge. Jesus never judged. And what I'd like to do today is examine that scripture and hopefully demonstrate that um, the Bible not only gives you permission to judge, but in fact encourages you to do so. And when you don't judge, there's terrible consequence that our culture has to reap. Now, it's going to prescribe the manner in which you ought to judge. But nevertheless, this verse isn't as simple as it's usually made out to be. So, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 2. Judge not that you be not judged. That's the modern way of saying it, I guess. Not lest ye be judged. For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay, right off the bat, there's a big problem. Because in English, those words, judge, judgment and justice, they usually invoke a a bad feeling. There's a negative connotation that surrounds those types of things. When you think of a judgment, an impending judgment, you don't think like usually good and happy thoughts. There's there's negative emotions surrounding that because we have things like judge, judgment, judge Judy, Terminator 2, judgment day. Terminator 2, judgment day. It's the end of the world, the apocalypse, right? Like it's not encouraging any happy thoughts. However, in the New Testament, in Greek, in the Old Testament Hebrew, those words, uh, krino in Greek and then mishpat for justice in Hebrew, have a much wide, there's a wider range of meaning. And it doesn't always invoke something negative. In fact, a lot of times it has something good inside of it. So in the Old Testament, you might encounter a verse that says, um, give mishpat, give justice to the orphan and the widow. That's not saying take the orphan and the widow out. It's saying, give to them what is rightly theirs. Protect them and honor them. Give mishpat to them. 
So an example of this would be, in English, those words, judge, judgment, and justice, they have a small range of meaning. It's like a very small car. It can't hold a lot of cargo. It doesn't have a wide range of meaning. This is one of those tiny smart cars. Many of you have them. Incredible on gas mileage, right? Great on, like, you get 10,000 miles to the gallon. If you run out of gas, you can ask your neighbor to borrow the lawnmower and just take a little bit out and go on a vacation off of it, you know? You just got to watch out because if there's like a little kid on a scooter and he hits you, your car's going to be totaled. <laughs> so it's a small car. It can't hold a lot of cargo. It can't hold a lot of uh, meaning in that. Where the Hebrew and Greek counterparts, say for instance, mishpat, it's a big giant word with a wide range of meaning. You could fit a lot of cargo into that. So we have to understand that we're coming at this from a different angle. So he says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, already you can see that something's kind of off here because Jesus isn't saying never to judge or don't judge at all. He's, he's, make, he's giving a warning. He's saying the same way you judge or with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, he's speaking of hypocritical judgment. You are making a judgment on somebody and using this measure. All the while, if that same measure was used against you, you would be guilty as well. And we know that hypocrisy is the context because the verses surrounding this section deal with that. Remember, Jesus previously said, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't fast like the hypocrites. He's not saying don't pray, don't fast. He's talking about the manner in which you pray, the manner in which you fast. And in a very similar fashion, Jesus is attacking a way that people are going about judging people. So, have you ever been hypocritically judged? Someone comes at you and approaches you and you're like, you're just as guilty or more than I am on this. Here's a, like a lighthearted example. Um, let's say you are single and, and you're looking to get married. You're looking to find the right person. You've been praying about it, hoping that God provides the right person, and it's Christmas time. And you're in one of those families where everyone comes to Christmas, big extended family, and you have this one relative, and some of you may know exactly what I'm talking about, that asks you every year, so are you married yet? Dating anybody? Engaged? Any prospects? And then you say, no. Uncle Bubba, I'm still trying. I'm trying to find the right person. And then they proceed to give you all of this relationship advice. You know, you really should do better with this. You know, if you did this a little bit, you really should cut this out. You're not going to find anybody. And it's all the while, it's like, Uncle Bubba hasn't ever even had a healthy relationship. In fact, he's had dysfunctional relationship after dysfunctional relationship for 25 years. He just has a whole history of bad relationships, but he's going to judge you and tell you what's up. And you say, Uncle Bubba, you're horrible at this. Who are you to, to give me advice? Well, I know I've got a long past, and look, here's the thing. You know, I've learned from my experiences, and that's what I'm trying to pass on to you. And you know, I brought Sarah. Things are working out. We've been, we've been dating for six months. I think she's the one. It's really working out. So I've learned from my mistakes, and now I have a healthy relationship. Uncle Bubba, Sarah posted on Instagram this morning, she's breaking up with you. The only reason why she's here is she loves my mom's macaroni and she wanted to have it one last time before she dumps you. Go look. She said a bunch of horrible things about you. It's online. She tagged you. 
So it's hypocritical judgment, right? It's, you're going to come at someone and lay out this stuff when you yourself are guilty. And so Jesus is addressing this sort of hypocritical type of judgment. But he's not necessarily saying, don't ever judge. And we know this because he goes on. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay, so this is an image. And this is supposed to be a sort of humor, it's kind of funny image. Jesus is giving you this humorous image. Um, if you were to picture like a slapstick style comedy, some of you like the, that type of comedy. I don't, but some of you love it. You picture like someone with a big giant two by four, a log coming out of their eye. And then they go up to individuals, individuals and they're like, let me, there's a speck in your eye, let me help. And then they go and what happens? They turn and they knock him out. And then the guy falls down and then he goes, oh, another speck. And he goes around and, he, and sooner enough, he's trying to take the specks out of everyone's eyes. And if it's a comedy, this style, by the time it's done, there's 12 bodies on the floor and he's going, what? What happened? And that's the joke type of thing. Everyone got beat up because he's got a log in his eye and he's trying to take the speck out. So again, though, what is the point? What is the end goal of this? Jesus is not saying, you have a log in your eye, therefore do not try to remove any speck. The end goal is, is in the end. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The end goal is that you clean up your act, you repent of whatever sin's going on in your life, you clean it up, and now you're in a better position to make a wise judgment and help a brother or sister in the faith remove the speck that is in their eye. The end goal actually is to make a judgment, but then to help that person remove that speck. And it's, it's bizarre because if you just take the first verse, you go, well, never supposed to judge. And you just have to read like two or three verses and you realize, no, it's talking about a certain type of judgment done in a certain manner, but you are supposed to remove the log and ultimately be able to help remove the speck in someone else's eye. Now, Next verse is crazy. This is one of the most strangest verses in the New Testament. Jesus goes on and says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What does that mean? Now, there was several, several years ago, I spoke on this passage. And... Um, I brought up some illustrations from something called the Brick Bible. It's, the, it's, it's, it's a, a Bible that's redone with Legos. So you redo the scene with Legos and you take a picture, but it's like some guy did the whole Bible. Now, he did this scene, and it's, it's some guy, he's giving water to a puppy, and then, then he gets pearls, the Lego man gets pearls, and he gives it to these nice little cute pigs, and then when it says, and then they trample them under their feet and tear you to pieces, there's like all these little red Legos and the little pigs eating the dude. Now, several years ago, I showed that as the illustration. I just want to say that over the last five years, I've grown and mature enough to not present you the bloody scene from the Lego study Bible uh, to make this illustration. To just, you know, five years, this much sanctification and the Lord's grace go a long way in someone's life. 
but they were in the slides and I deleted them this morning. <laughs> it's all true. It's all true. Or I, I, asked, I sent Stan an email. God, let's take these out. Okay, so what in the world then is going on? There is tons of different interpretations of this passage. And I'm not exactly certain what it means. It's one of those mysterious passages where a lot of people have different opinions. By the end of the second century, many people in the early church thought it referred to uh, baptism and communion, that you weren't supposed to offer communion to someone who wasn't baptized. And so that was one interpretation on one end. And on the other end, there's a host of other interpretations. I'm going to tell you what I think is going on, but I, I just we, we're, we can't say it with certainty. But this is what I think is going on. Jesus is talking about a situation where you have something good and right and true to tell someone. You are going to confront them, because remember, this is about removing specs. You're going to confront them with something that is true, right, and good. But what you are going to confront them with, the person is not ready to hear and they won't receive it. And so ultimately, that person will not only trample the pearls, your wise words that are there for their benefit, they not only will trample those words, but as you speak the truth in the life, they will turn and attack you. Now, does that sound familiar? Have you been there? On either end. You, you, you have good motives. You have something good and right and true to tell someone. You're telling them, you're on a road and it leads to destruction and you're trying to tell them for their benefit. But as you tell them, that person is just not going to hear it. And rather than just not accept it, they trample your wise words on the floor and they turn and attack you. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine, for they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now out of this, some, some sort of we'll call principles of judgment begin to emerge because Jesus is not condemning ever making judgments. He's saying not to go about judging and making judgments in a certain manner. So one thing we need to understand is that we should never judge superficially. Never judge superficially. Before you make a judgment on somebody, know their story. Know where they've been. I watch a YouTube channel of a guy who does these short like documentary interviews, 20 minutes to an hour sometimes. And they're pretty simple. It's just this dude interviewing someone in a chair. And they're people who are from extreme kind of walks of life. So they're someone who's addicted to gambling, someone who is a prostitute, someone who's addicted to some substance abuse, someone who has a history of criminal activity. It's like all, all these different things. And within three to five minutes of the interview, the interviewer always goes and asks this question. He goes, so tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your childhood. And when you see someone struggling with substance abuse or a young woman who is in a lifestyle of prostitution, I am telling you, nine times out of 10, 95% of the time, 99% of the time, I don't know the exact number, but the majority of the time when he asks that young woman or that person who's addicted to some substance, tell me about your childhood, there is some extreme point of pain in their past. And I'm not just talking about some small thing. I am talking about unspeakable, horrific events that cause immense amounts of pain. 
You know, so in one sense, you look at someone living a certain way. How could you do that? What's wrong with you? And then you hear someone's story and you go, I don't even know how you get out of bed in the morning. I mean, some of you know this. That's your past. And you say, by the grace of God, I'm here today. And you don't mean that in some lighthearted fashion like way. Literally, by the grace of God, you, you are here alive today. Because if not for him, you would be dead. And so before you go and judge others, recognize they have a story. And so we're called not to judge superficially. Now that is not to say you are never to make a moral claim. It's not to say you don't say doing this is wrong. In fact, you need to say doing this is wrong. That's a wise and good judgment. But you don't have a spirit of judgmentalism. You don't have a spirit of condemnation. And you know the story. And you can see through different eyes. Secondly, we already hit on this, you're to never judge hypocritically. And that could be in small manners or large manners. Small manner may be something like, you know, a, a person gossips and slanders someone because look at, look at how they spend their money. All they do is spend money on ABC and they're so unwise with their spending habits. Meanwhile, you're spending all your money on XYZ and being unwise. But yet you take advantage to slander and gossip whenever you get the chance. It's hypocritical judgment. In a more serious manner, um, where it affects and damages the witness and mission of the church, um, in the 90s and early 2000s, and it still happens today, uh, just the really big examples were late 90s, early, early 2000s, but it's still unfortunately happening. There will be pastors, Christian leaders, Christian ministry leaders who like, focus in on a certain sin or a certain set of sins. And they're just always going after them, always going after them. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, they're participating in those exact same things. So what was really big in the 90s, early 2000s, and again, it's still happening, is there'll be a pastor who's, who's waging war on sexual immorality, con- talking about it, like every Sunday, almost condemning sexual immorality, condemning sexual immorality, all the while, behind the scenes, they're participating in sexual immorality, involved in some extramarital affair or something. Now again, this is not to say you should not call sexual immorality sin. You need to. Evil is evil, sin is sin. However, you are not to do it in a hypocritical manner. Because when a pastor or a ministry leader is condemning that thing, and then they get busted for doing it, guess what the rest of the world does? Look at that hypocrite. And damage is done to the name of Christ and the mission and witness of the church because of the hypocrisy. So again, the goal is to remove the speck. But before you go looking for the specks, you have to remove the log. So we never judge superficially, we never judge hypocritically, and we never judge without love. The the point of making a judgment is not to condemn someone. It's to help them. You are going down a road that leads to destruction. I love you. I'm speaking these words to you because I love you. Don't keep going down that way. It is not condemning. It is not judgmentalism. It's a judgment based in love. You can have the right words and go about it all the wrong way. Has someone ever done that to you or maybe you've done it? 
Has someone confronted you with something that actually you knew deep down in your bones was true, but you knew that they weren't for you, they were against you, and just wanted to rub in your face, and so you immediately put up walls and shut down the conversation? I'm not having this. Even if you know it, that's, that's how complex human beings are. Even when you know it's right, you can put up a wall and say, I'm not having it. And you can feel when someone's for you or against you. So we don't judge superficially, we don't judge hypocritically, we don't judge without love, but Christians are called to make sound, moral, and ethical judgments. Matthew 7 is not about stopping or ceasing any type of ethical or moral reasoning. So the next time someone says, don't you know it's in the Bible that you're never supposed to judge, you need to respond with, you keep using that Bible verse. I don't think it means what you think it means from one of the great cinematic masterpieces. Okay, there's another layer to this that helps us navigate the waters. We'll talk about family rules. You might remember when you were a kid or in junior high or high school, you go to a friend's house and immediately you would start to pick up on the fact that there's unspoken family rules that apply in this house that may have not been the case for your home. So for example, some homes you go to and you're like, well, what's on TV? Let's, let's watch some TV. And the parents go, no, we're not, wa- no, no, we're not watching any TV. Go play outside. Go have some fun. Then another family, a parent might be, look, you kids are annoying, obnoxious, and loud. There's a TV over in that room. You can go watch it however long you want. Just don't come bother me. It's a long day at work. Or around dinner, we don't eat until everyone's here and we're settled, and then we bring the food out like in, in, in sections, like first comes salad and this, and then there's some families like, you hungry? And hot pocket in the freezer. Go get it. And so, and it's not, I'm not speaking about the right or wrongness of of the family rules. I'm just showing you that different families have different sets of rules. As believers, we have family rules. When you become a Christian, you enter into the faith. God says you are to be baptized and brought into the family of God. And once you're in there, there are moral and ethical standards that function as the family rules, and we ought to strive to obey them. Not because they're burdensome or bad, but because our good heavenly Father has given us good rules that will help us flourish in this life. And we are called to hold each other accountable to those family rules because no one forces you to be in the house. You decided to become a Christian. You signed up to be a follower of Jesus, and now there's family rules. Now, those family rules don't then automatically apply to everyone else. For example, if, if I'm talking to someone who isn't a Christian, and like somehow he says, I've never given to a church, I'm not going to be like, oh my goodness, you don't, you don't give to a church? He, he's not Christian. I don't assume he's generous with his money towards the kingdom of God. He's not a believer. That's a family rule type of thing. Christians are called to be generous to advance the kingdom of God. That's an in-house thing. It's family. Or here's another example. Um, I enjoy fishing, surf fishing. I like surf fishing a lot. If you've ever uh, seen people fishing on the surf, you notice that hardly anyone catches any fish. It's very difficult. 
Um, but on good days, when people who know what they're doing, they know the tide, they know the weather, they know when stuff's biting, you'll see like 15 people surf fishing, and like on other days, there's no one. And let's say I'm not catching any fish. What I'm going to do is I'm going to keep scooting because I want to find where the tides are creating a little, a little hole for some surf perch to go around, some bait fish, and maybe a bigger striper might come by. But you keep looking. And then you might see someone, you know, 50 feet up there, and you're like, this guy's catching fish, man. I'm not catching anything. So you, you get the scoot. Keep scooting. Get closer. And eventually, you get, hey, what are you using for bait, man? That's the question. And if he's, if he's a good guy, he'll tell you. If he's a fisherman, he'll lie to you. Um, and what can happen is you get some people congregating together and you're talking about what's working and what's not and if, if, if the vibe is right you almost like kind of there's some camaraderie and a little mini friendship and what happens is then people let down their guard and then something like this can happen people start cursing using profanity talking inappropriate jokes uh, and you know people kind of start talking in ways that they would only do when they've kind of let down their guard. And eventually they're talking filthy, saying some jokes that shouldn't be said, maybe. And then they go, so what do you do for a living? (laughs) Now, I've been told I don't present pastorally. Um, So I go, oh man, I work at a church, I'm a pastor. And not all the time, but sometimes, depending upon the person, they'll immediately respond with, Oh, dude, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have been talking. As if, as if me being a pastor means anything to how they speak. Like, yes, I believe there is inappropriate speech, but I am not offended because someone who's not a follower of Jesus talks in a certain way. Like, my, my hope and goal is not, well, I hope they don't say bad words in front of me because I'm a pastor. That's ridiculous. My hope and goal is that God would graciously draw these people into his family and they would be a part of the Christian community and accept his family rules. Our goal is to get them to the Lord and then family rules. And over time and the Holy Spirit's work in people's life, progress can be made. But I'm not like, oh my gosh, I'm a pastor. I'm going to melt because I've heard these words. There's family rules and then there's people on the outside. Now, Paul the Apostle gives us incredible wisdom in dealing with these these situations. This is a heavy verse. It's a heavy verse. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. Okay, follow the logic. Paul says, I previously told you not to associate with idolaters and swindlers and sexually immoral people. But you took it as, like, don't associate with anyone who's sexually immoral or swindler or idolaters. And he goes, if you did that, you couldn't even go outside. You couldn't even go to work. Then he corrects it. He clarifies his original point. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So Paul's going, I wasn't talking to you about those on outside of the church. I'm talking about those who bear the name of brother, who claim to be a Christian, 
brothers and sisters who claim to be Christian. That's who I'm talking to you about. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's heavy. That's heavy. But do you see the inner logic here? He's saying, on the outside, there is wickedness, there's evil, and there is sin. I'm not telling you not to make a judgment about those, but, I, but of course you have to associate with those people. You've got to tell them about Jesus. This isn't, you don't go around condemning all these people. You, you, you teach them about the gospel. But once you've signed up to be a Christian, once you've confessed Jesus as Lord and you want to be a part of the family of God, there's family rules. And for those who bear the name of Christ, who you call brother or sister, if there is clear, unrepented, sinful behavior going on, you are to judge that person. And this is the heavy part that no one wants to hear. Purge the evil person from among you. No one wanted to hear that today. But our job is not to tell Scripture what it ought to say, but to submit to what the Scriptures tell us. So what's going on here? Paul is not saying we are to... Some of you got... You're kind of excited, don't be. Paul is not saying, because the the judgmental people in the room are loving this sermon so far. Um, He's not saying, man, get your... look Look for the sins, and when you find them, purge the evil. Take, kick them out of church type of thing. Paul is addressing ongoing sinful behavior where a person's unrepentant and they don't care and they're going to continue doing this and claim to be a Christian and go and attend the church. We're talking about serious, grievous sin that is evil and wrong and a person shows no care or regard. See, that's even different. Like some of you might be saying, oh no, I've been struggling with this sin for so long. I'm not talking about struggling with the sin. I'm not talking about someone who's trying to do better. I am talking about unrepented sin where you don't care. You clearly walk down that path. You're practicing sexual immorality. You're an idolater. Like you can't still go sacrifice to Zeus and come and worship Christ. And if you do so, you're confronted in the church saying, hey, you can't be doing this. And you're like, well, I don't care. I'm going to do a little bit for Christ, a little bit for Zeus. No, you don't get to do that. So how this would work in, in like the modern world. Let's say someone is um, having an extramarital affair and they're cheating on their spouse. And they're confronted. And they don't care. Yeah. I haven't loved, lo- loved her for years. It's no big deal. Whatever. I got, I, this isn't the first one. I've cheated multiple times. I, I don't care. But, I, you know, but I'll still come to church, you know. No. If you are going to cheat on your spouse and not try to repent and resolve this, you are not allowed to come here. You are kicked out of the community of faith. Why? Because it's a blessing and a privilege and honor to be a part of the people of God. To be able to come and worship and hear his word and pray with the saints and participate in communion, that is a privilege that you get because God was gracious to you. 
And if you are going to actively rebel against the family rules and cause this much harm and destruction to your spouse and your family, you are not welcome here. Now, if this person is an unbeliever, they haven't signed up for family rules. So you may be saying, hey, I just came to this church. I don't believe in Jesus. I'm just checking things out. Man, if you knew all the stuff in my life, I'm glad you're here. Continue hearing the words of Jesus. If you trust him and you repent, he'll change you from the inside out. You won't be perfect overnight, but little by little, he'll change. And again, so the spirit is not who's doing wrong, man. Let's purge the evil. Wait for him after church by their car. Rough him up a little bit. <laughs> it's a clear, unrepented evil that, doesn't, that the person doesn't care about. One of the things that... Um, kind of the last two years has taught a lot of people, including myself, that we took for granted is how much um, you might have had Sundays, and you could still have Sundays like this. We all have bad mornings. But you might have had a Sunday before where, oh man, I got to go to church. Got all this stuff. And I, re- I remember whenever, whenever you decided for, to maybe start coming back to, to in person, whatever day that happened for some people it was very early with outdoor services. For some, it was later, wherever it may be. But I remember, for me at least, like I've been forever changed. Like the second Drew starts the worship, I, I'm, I'm thankful. Like I'm going, I'm getting to be here and there's Christians singing to Jesus. I am genuinely more thankful for that after all of this. And I see it as like, what a privilege, honor, and blessing We get to take communion and we remember Christ's death together. We sing together. We hear his word. We pray together. You do not get to participate in the benefits and privileges of Christian community if you continue to actively walk in that style of disobedience. It's not allowed. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, here's the balance. Because again, it's not condemnation or let's get them, let's get them out. Here's what the Apostle Paul would say in Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now feel the emotional tone of this, feel the weight of this. Because Paul is not, again, like, purge the evil, let's go get him. Listen, if anyone is caught in a sin, a transgression, someone who is more spiritually mature, someone who has removed the log or the plank from their eye, someone who is spiritually mature should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. It's a love, it's a kindness, it's a gentleness. And then listen, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Because don't think... Don't let pride sneak in there. I'm spiritually mature. I don't struggle with sin either. I can just come. Let me be the speck remover. You know, that's my job. No, you watch, lest you fall into temptation, but you bear one another's burdens. Feel that. This isn't condemnation or judgmentalism. It's bearing each other's burden. I see you're on a path that leads to destruction. I see you're on a path that leads to death. Help me help you. I want to bear your burdens with you. I don't want you to go down this way. And in doing that, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. And then this last, set, this last sentence is awesome. We should put this, like print it out and put it on your mirror so you wake up and see it every morning. 
If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Because if you think you're so spiritually wise and mature that you go around moving specks, remember why you're here, why you're a part of the family of God. Because God was gracious to you in your sin and in your rebellion. You're not here because of your own moral virtue or platitudes or, you know, ethical backbone. You're here because God was gracious to you and he's been working with you and all your issues and the mess that you brought to the table that we all bring to the table, God has been working in us and through his spirit maturing us. And so if you find yourself in a place where you've removed a certain log from your eye, you might, with fear and trembling, with love and gentleness, be out of place to help someone move the speck from their eye. But don't let pride sneak in. So, as we do these types of things, we realize that typically, depending upon our wiring and our temperament, we're going to go to one extreme. Some of us will gravitate being to all grace and no truth type of people, and some of us will be all truth and no grace. And you got to got to figure out the way you're wired. So if you're all grace and no truth, someone comes to you, they're confessing sins and struggles, and it's like they're, they're, they're actually confessing the sins, and you're almost downplaying it. Oh no, it's not that big of a deal. You know, God, God, God loves you just the way you are. You don't have to change anything. Like, no, I really think I need to change some things about myself. Oh, I, I'm sure there's a few things, but I think you're perfect. Just, and it's like all grace and no truth. When you might need to say, God loves you. He is for you. He's not against you. I am for you, not against you. But you're going down a road that leads to destruction. You need to cut it out. Don't think you can keep walking this way and not have it come around and bite you. And then there's people on the opposite end. You're the all truth and no grace people. And you don't know who you are. (laughs) You don't. For whatever reason, these people never know who they are. Um, usually it has to be told to them. I, I, I fall into this category oftentimes. It's like, what's wrong with you? Like, seriously, like, you're, 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 are you kidding me? That's all the stuff you've been doing? What's wrong with you, man? Don't you know Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords? You know where he's going to send you, man? Type of thing. And it's, there's no grace. No grace. And so you have to, to follow the witness of Scripture. And Scripture teaches us it's truth, it's grace, it's gentleness. Our motivations ought to be right. We ought to be for people, not against people. We don't want them to go down a certain path. But we are still called to engage in those types of judgments. So what I want to do is, is give you a larger car, if you remember where we begin. At the Hollister second service earlier, I don't think someone might have not been listening to the first part because I said, I want to give you a larger car. And God, happy. Like, you get a car, you get a car. That's not what I mean. Yeah, it's not what I mean. I want to give us, as as we close, a bigger understanding of judgment, judging, and justice. For the Christian... Justice and judgment is not just a negative thing. In fact, judgment is our great hope. It is a word that should fill us with happiness and and hope in the future. Because we believe that one day Christ will come and judge the world. And why is that hopeful? Why is that so important? 
because what we've been talking about the last several weeks, especially with the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we pray it with an ache. Lord, our world is broken. There's immense evil and suffering, so we want your kingdom to come. And that means the judge comes. The judge will come and right the world of its wrongs because we're tired of seeing evil and suffering and pain. There's people that don't have enough food to eat on this planet, not, no clean drinking water. There's people who are in immense situations of abuse, and it's like, Lord Jesus, when you, the good judge, comes, you will judge rightly, and you will fix this mess. And so judge and judgment and justice for the Christian should have a much more positive tone. It's not just a negative thing. I have heard Christians and non-Christians say Jesus never judged. I have heard pastors say Jesus never judged. I have heard ministry leaders say Jesus never judges people and we as Christians are never to do that. And you might have said something like that in the past. And maybe there was a sense in which you were meaning it and there's a, a way in which it could be true. But if you have said it, I just want to lightly remove a speck. Jesus judged all of the time. Like all of the time. What does Jesus say happens to people who harm children? You cause a little one to stumble? What? Better that a giant rock is tied around your neck and you're thrown into a lake. That's what happened. You, you want to harm children? Better that you, a, a rock is tied around your neck and you're thrown into a lake. What did he say to the Pharisees? What did he call them? Vipers, whitewashed tombs, hypocrites. You are like a cup that's clean on the outside but filthy on the inside. How many times does Jesus say, woe to you, woe to you? And if that's all not enough, how does the great story of Scripture end? Where there is a judge who comes and has a day of judgment when everything in the created order will be judged by him. He is the judge. You can't escape it. And so we as Christians live in light of that truth. And we want, we want to embody his truth in a loving and gracious manner, but we don't pretend like judgment in and of itself is a bad thing. I have a friend who posted this years ago. He lives in Portland. And uh, a car had a bumper sticker, non-judgment day is near. And he, he, he posted this. He said, is this the day when abuse, murder, theft, pride, and greed are finally able to run rampant, unhindered, and free? You know? No one wants a world without any judgment. People just don't want their own evil to be called out. Or maybe you've been called out in inappropriate manners. You, you grew up in a household where it was all truth and no grace. And so just the word of judgment causes all these emotions. Yeah, I, I get it. That's painful stuff. But you need to align your vision of judgment with the biblical vision of judgment, that there is a good king who is wise and good and faithful, and he is for you and he's not against you. And he's looking down on the earth and being patient so that as many who would come to repentance will come to repentance. But there will be a day when he says enough is enough and the good king will judge rightly. And the Christian looks forward to that day. Listen to how the scriptures end. 
closing of the scriptures, Revelation. This is Jesus speaking. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's heavy. That is heavy and weighty. We want the Lord Jesus to come because we get tired of seeing evil and suffering. We get tired of seeing abuse. Listen, we live in such an evil, vile, wicked place that you have to teach your children when they're this tall what inappropriate touching is. What kind of world is that? That is a world that will face the judge. And this judge is so good and so kind that he offers you a chance at repentance. And so the good judge doesn't look down upon us and just dump upon his wrath. The good judge himself takes our guilty verdict, our sin and our shame, and puts him on his back and nails him to the cross so that anyone who might express faith in him and desire repentance can come to him and be adopted into his family and learn the benefits of his family rules how they give you a life of flourishing. The good judge takes the guilty verdict upon himself and takes it and nails it to the cross in his body so that you might have an opportunity to be a part of the family of God. But we look forward to this day. We look forward and hope to that day. And in the meantime, Christians are not to shy away from judging, but we are to do it in a loving, gracious manner. We are to have sound, ethical, and moral teaching. Because let me tell you what happens when Christians hide behind a faulty view of Matthew 7. When Christians just say, I'm not going to call anything evil, evil. Who am I to judge? Do you know what happens when the church doesn't use their God-given moral compass in a culture to call sin, sin, and evil, evil? What happens is right now, absolute moral insanity God has given us his gracious moral compass. And we don't look with condemnation or judgmentalism. We hold each other accountable to the family rules. And we show those on the outside the moral compass, knowing that that's between them and God. And we do that with love and gentleness and patience and kindness. And we always remember the only reason why we are here in the family of God is because while we were enemies of God, while we were still sinning, Christ died for us and by his grace brought us into his fold. So be careful lest you think you are something. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, when he takes our guilty verdict upon his back to the cross, He says, this is my body broken for you. You take this and you remember. And so today, Lord, we remember that you are not only the great judge, but you are the lamb that was slain on our behalf. We remember. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. And we say that as we drink this, we want to pledge our allegiance to our King Jesus, to be faithful to him, to proclaim his death, his resurrection, until he returns. And so, Lord, we affirm that you will come again as the good king and the good judge. That is our hope, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come.
Father, as we close, may we turn in worship of your son, Jesus. He is our good king, our good judge, who takes our penalty, who shows us grace, and who brings us into the family. So may your son, Jesus, be honored as we close this time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.